Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. for today's teaching is Mark 10, 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have great treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astounded and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, thanks, Rhonda. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. If we've not met, I'd love to meet you after the service. It's so good to have you this morning at our nine. Hope you enjoyed your extra hour of sleep. Uh, I know I just stayed up an extra hour, so that's, I'm sure I'm not alone in that. Uh, hey, a few things as we jump in. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to do as a church, and maybe the thing that we're trying to do as a church, is not fight for cultural relevance but rather to fight for gospel resilience. And I want to just invite you into that. Maybe this is your first time back in church after a while. Maybe this is your first time at Frontline. Or maybe you've been here for years and years and years. But if you're here and you consider Frontline home, man, there's something unique happening in our moment as a culture. There's a lot of unique things happening. But I think one of the biggest things that we're seeing as pastors is that probably due to COVID and some of the political climate and everything else, 
is this exposure of what has been laying underneath the surface for years and years, which is just kind of a cultural Christianity at play. And I think God in his love and in his mercy is actually exposing cultural Christianity to be the unhelpful sham that it is. And he's inviting you and I to really be followers of Jesus. There's a difference between just saying you're a Christian and not actually having a life that's submitted to Jesus and being a follower of Jesus, being a real Christian. There's a difference there. And uh, what we're seeing happen all over is kind of a third of our church uh, that prior to COVID was around is no longer here. Uh, and, and some of that's due to uh, they've moved on to another church. Uh, mo- most of that, to be honest with you, is like they've moved on from Christianity and are kind of in a process of deconstructing their faith. We have another third that's the most committed they've ever been. And I'm not saying committed to frontline. I'm saying committed to Jesus and his way as opposed to their own way. And then I think we have probably another third that's wrestling between those two options. Which way do I go? And I just want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, man, can we not try to fight for cultural relevance But instead, can we fight for gospel resilience together? Gospel resilience actually is profoundly relevant in our moment. And uh, so I just want you to know, like, what what is Frontline about? We're not trying to be cool. In fact, we're not cool. We're trying to be resilient in the gospel. And the way we structure our gatherings and the way we structure uh, our scattering together in community is around that end. Does that make sense? Okay, so just a little thing that I wanted to share with you this morning that's heavy on my heart. Let me pray for us real quick, and then we're going to jump into this amazing, hard, difficult teaching from Jesus. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for the fact that we get to gather, and we just stood underneath your word. And I pray today that even though I'm standing in this moment, that I would be seated below your authority, underneath your word. You have the right to teach us and to train us and to shape us and to form us and to heal us and forgive us and care for us. And we just receive your love today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Gospel of Mark, we are in part 28 of this series on the Gospel of Mark. And if you remember, if you've been with us, this this book is sliced in half, if you will. The first half of the book of Mark runs almost to chapter 9, around chapter 9, and it's it's asking the question, or really rather making the statement, uh, that Jesus is the king and he has arrived, right? So that's the first part of this book. The second part, though, is saying Jesus is the king, but he's not the type of king that you expected. He's different, and his kingdom is different than what you and I might have suspected it to be. And so what he's been doing is giving his disciples, and by default, you and I, as disciples in 2021, a vision for what it really means to believe in this Jesus, and what it really means to follow this Jesus, and what it really means to function as a disciple of this Jesus. And, and he's been going into every nook and cranny of our lives up to this point, have you noticed? And digging into things that we don't want him to dig into, and pressing on things that we don't want him to press on. Last week, he pressed on our vision of marriage and divorce. And if that didn't offend you last week, then hopefully today, none of us are going to get out unscathed. I think today you will be offended because Jesus wants to move from marriage and divorce to our vision of money and possessions. So he's just digging deeper. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, of course you're talking about money. That's all the church ever talks about. There's money, money, money. That's all the church cares about. Well, that might be true, but let me just say uh, here, the last time that I preached on money was 96 weeks ago. 
So we do talk about money because Jesus talked about money. We don't always talk about money, and we haven't talked about money specifically in a sermon in 96 Sundays, okay? So I'm just showing my math, and you can prove on our website that what I'm saying is actually true. So might, might there be churches out there that's all they talk about? Yes, but here it's been 96 weeks, so we're kind of due for it, right? Okay, now, you might be like, okay, well, 96 weeks, that's not too bad, but just remember that Jesus talked about money almost constantly, just a few uh, things for you to consider. Out of his 38 parables, 16 of his parables were about money and possessions. In the Gospels alone, uh, about one out of every 10 verses, comes to 288 verses in total, deal directly with the subject of money and possessions. The Bible as a whole has 500 verses on prayer. Prayer's a big deal if you're a follower of Jesus, right? Like, prayers, can we agree prayer's important? 500 verses? Uh, 500 verses on faith? Faith is kind of a big deal, right? That's part of the whole thing. 500 verses on faith or less than, more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. He talks about money and possessions almost constantly, and it's not because he's trying to get rich. In fact, Jesus wasn't rich. It's not because he's trying to uh, treat people as, you know, kind of like, I I want all your resources so I can just mooch off of you. That's not at all the case. There's something about money and possessions and its unique tie into our heart and soul that Jesus understands and he wants to draw out of us. And to fully understand why and what that is, we need to kind of dig into this story today. So let me give you some context before we jump into the actual story. If you remember where we left off last week, Jesus is teaching about marriage and divorce, and he's with his disciples in a room. Privately, he's talking with them. And in the middle of that teaching, some women and some, some dads, these moms and dads, come rushing into the house with their children, with their infant babies. And the disciples try to stop it. They're like, hey, Jesus is really important, and he's busy, and these infants are not important, so get out of here. And yet Jesus rebukes them, and here's what he says in verse 14. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And if you remember from last week, what Jesus was saying here is not uh, describing the cuteness of the kids or the adorability of these little infants or how, you know, just uh, kind and and awesome they are. No, no, no. He's actually talking about the fact that an infant child is helpless. An infant child has nothing to offer. An infant child is in need, not the one that can meet needs. An infant child is empty-handed in the most real, true sense of the word. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to become like that. You've got to become needy and helpless and empty-handed. Now, that story lands right before the story we're looking at today because it's meant to be a juxtaposition between two different ways to live. You can live as the helpless, needy, empty-handed ones, if you will. And we're going to see this other way of living, which is this man who has his hands full of stuff. And you have to figure out which one of these two you want to live inside of. So with that in mind, let's jump in and let's look at verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journeys, leaving the house, a man ran up and knelt before him. This man we know later from uh, the Gospel of Matthew and Luke that he was both young uh, and a ruler 
And so he's often called the rich young ruler. Here we know that he's wealthy, but in those gospels we learn other parts about him. So rich young ruler is another way of describing this man that ran up. And he asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let's just pause there for a minute. When you and I hear the phrase, uh, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? We often think, uh, Jesus, what do I have to do to go to heaven when I die? But that's not at all what this man is asking. In fact, the Jewish mind didn't have this concept of like, when I die, I float off and I spend an eternity somewhere floating in the sky. That was not actually their vision. When he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What was in his mind was in every Jewish mind because they would divide the history of the world into two different uh, time periods. So the first time period was known as the present age. The second time period was known as the age to come. The, the, the present age was described as the world that we live in right now. It's filled with brokenness and sin and dysfunction and there's diseases and there's death and there's evil and there's injustice and suffering and there's all these things. And, and coming soon, there's going to be this Messiah, this one sent from God that's going to restore the world back to the way it was designed to be, to bring back what was known as shalom or peace or wholeness. And, 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 and that's going to be known as the age to come. And What's going to happen is he's going to show up as this mighty, powerful ruler, and he's going to do away with injustice and evil, and he's going to invite the righteous into this new age to come. He's going to invite them into his kingdom. So there's going to be this judgment where if you're unrighteous and wicked, you're not invited, and if you're righteous, then you're invited into this age to come. So this man is asking a really good question. He's saying, hey, good teacher, what do I need to do? You know, I'm a Jewish man. I'm thinking about the present age and the age to come. What do I need to do to make sure that I'm invited into the kingdom as opposed to excluded from the kingdom, right? This is the question that he's asking. Now, look at what Jesus says in verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Pause there for just a minute. It's hard to know what Jesus is saying here. Commentators disagree. Some people say that he's always kind of hinting at his divinity a little bit, saying, you know, are you sure you want to call me good because I'm actually God and are you ready to grapple with that? Other people say that maybe what he's doing is this rich young ruler, as a rich, wealthy ruler, is used to dealing with people and dealing with other leaders and other people in positions of power. So maybe he's like kind of buttering up Jesus a little bit to get on the inside. You know, there's all these different views. I'm not exactly sure what's happening, but I do think that Jesus is kind of asking this young man, hey, are you sure that you want to call me good? Because there's implications, if I really am good, I I would be God, and if I'm God and I'm a good teacher, then you're forced to now listen to my teaching. So I think that's a little bit what Jesus is doing. Verse 19, Jesus goes on, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Okay, so what's happening here? The rich young ruler shows up to Jesus. He, he says, what do I need to do to be invited into the kingdom? And, and Jesus responds by listing off some of 
the Ten Commandments. Now, this has been taught again and again in a way that I just I think is wrong, and, and that's to say what Jesus is doing is he's laying up the law for this guy and saying, here's what the law says, and see, you failed, so here's why you need grace and you need forgiveness. And, and it is true that this man has failed against the law, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Every Jewish person had this type of question in their mind about how do I get invited into the kingdom of God as opposed to getting excluded. And there were different groups that had different answers. You had the Pharisees uh, or the Essenes, for example, and they all had a different take. And here's what they would say. All of them would respond with two answers. What do you have to do to uh, inherit the kingdom of God? Well, step one, here's what the law says, and here's the heart of God for how to live, and here's what his vision for life really looks like. And then, and they would give their interpretation of that law. Then the second thing they would do is they would say, now, come follow into our way. So come be a Pharisee, or come be an Essene, or come join this group or that group, and follow in this way, as we are the ones that are going to be inheriting the kingdom of God. Jesus, very simply though, says, here's some of the Ten Commandments. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, to really understand what's happening here, remember that Jesus is now quoting from like the second half of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are divided in two, where the first half primarily deal with our relationship with God, and the second half primarily deal with our relationship with one another. And Jesus doesn't even touch the first half. He just goes straight to the second half, and he says, hey, uh, here's the way that I want you to relate in human relationships with other people. And notice what this man says in response, because this is a total setup, a brilliant setup by Jesus. Verse 20, and he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. In other words, he's like, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stolen. I haven't committed to, like, he's not being facetious. He's not being arrogant. He's not being unhelpfully boasting in his righteousness. He's just saying, yeah, I've done the things that you're describing, right? Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Look at what Jesus does. Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, that word is like he peers deep inside of him, loved him. It's the only time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus looks at a person and loved him. It's the only time we read something like this. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Here's the setup that Jesus is doing to this young man. He's saying, yeah, you've kept the law. Like if we put your life up against the law, you actually have kept the external law, but the heart of the matter Friend, you've missed the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is that actually the first part of the Ten Commandments says, don't have any other gods before me. Love me above everyone else. And this man had this issue where actually over time, we don't know when it happened, but money became his God as opposed to the God of the Bible. And though externally he was moral and he looked like he was doing everything that he was supposed to do, there was a heart condition that showed that not everything was okay in his heart. This is what Jesus is pressing on. Now, it's interesting, this word sorrowful, he went away sorrowful uh, in Greek, literally means he went away grieved. 
And that word that's used is really important because it's describing that type of feeling that you have when you experience loss to the ultimate. Like the most important thing in your life gets cut off or taken from you. It's, it's a type of grief that just takes the, the breath away, right? And, and here's how to understand this word. Interestingly, Matthew in his gospel uses this exact same word to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was overcome with sorrow or grief to the point that he was near death, says that he was sweating great drops of blood. And here's what was happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is grappling with the fact that the most ultimate thing in his life, really not a thing, a person, God the Father, the the one that he loved, the one that he was anchored in, his source of identity and joy and hope and meaning and significance would be in a matter of hours completely cut off from that. That instead of experiencing the nearness of the Father, the love of the Father, the affirmation of the Father, that Jesus on the cross would instead experience silence and darkness from God the Father. And so here Jesus is grieved. He's filled with sorrow. He's, he's, he's in anguish because of the most ultimate thing in his life he is about to lose in a matter of hours. Now, Tim Keller makes the connection like this between that story and this story. When Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. To lose his money would have been to lose himself. Do you see that? That's what Jesus is driving at. So three things that I want you to see real quickly and we'll be done. Here's the first. It's the cost of, of discipleship. It's the cost of discipleship. Let's start broad, and then let's get a little bit more specific. Jesus wants to come to you, and he wants to come to me, and he wants to look you and me in the eyes and ask you to give away whatever is most ultimate in your life, the place that you look for identity and security and meaning, and joy, and hope. Jesus is wanting us to grapple with the fact that to be his disciple, he's going to look at you and I, and for some of us it might be money, for some of us it might be something else, and he's gonna say, would you give it all away to come follow me? This is a further teaching of what he's already been saying when when Peter's trying to get Jesus to not go to the cross, and Jesus turns and he rebukes Peter, and what does he say? He says, hey, if anyone would be my disciple... Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This man is saying, you're asking me to give away all my money, but that would be to lose my very self. And Jesus' response is, exactly. That's what I'm asking you to do. Remember, because if you want to keep your life, you have to give it away. If you want to find your life, you, you give it away. That's what Jesus is saying to this man and by default to you and I. Now, let me just pause for a second. And I want you to look at this slide up here. The cost of discipleship. If you've been here for like this entire time that we've been in the Gospel of Mark, this slide has shown up on the screen dozens of times by this point. And, and, and sure, there's like definitely better preachers out there who are far more creative and better at this whole preaching thing than the preachers that you are stuck with here at Frontline. But it's not that we're lacking creativity that this slide keeps landing on the screen. The reason why this slide keeps landing on the screen is because this is one of the core things that Mark is driving home again and again and again and again. It is the cost of being someone who will be a disciple of Jesus. 
It shows up again and again because Jesus is not done teaching us the cost of what it means to follow him. Here's what James Edwards says. The call to discipleship involves a cost of discipleship. Fishermen must leave boats and nets. A tax collector, his tax table. And Peter, his false conception of the Messiah. The call to follow Jesus does not constitute an additional obligation in life, but rather judges, replaces, and subordinates all obligations and allegiances to the one who says, follow me. That's what's happening here. He's asking you, would you be willing to walk away from the thing that you look to for identity and security and meaning and joy and hope and instead find that in me? Because if the answer is no, then functionally it might mean that it's not Jesus that you're actually following and loving and trusting. Functionally, it might mean that there's something else in your life that's more significant to you than God himself. Now, let me help you with this because I think this is important. There is a difference between giving up and giving away. Do you, you see that? There's a difference between giving up and giving away. In other words, Jesus doesn't come to this young man and say, oh, you want to be my disciple? Take all your possessions, put them in a big pile, and set it on fire. Because I'm a mean Grinch in the sky that doesn't want you to have any possessions or any fun or any happiness or any joy. Just set it on fire. You notice that that's not what Jesus asks him to do. What does Jesus ask this young man to do? Sell all your stuff and give it to who? To the poor. In other words, Jesus isn't saying, hey, it's, it's because I don't want you to have any joy. It's because I don't want you to have any fun, any pleasure, any delight in life. It's because I don't want you to smile at all. No, no, no. He's saying, you said that you followed those second half of the Ten Commandments dealing with the way that you relate to other people. If that's really true, if you really do love people to not kill them and you love people to not steal from them and you love people to not defraud them, if that's really true, do you love them enough to give them all your stuff? I'm asking you to actually take what you have and not set it on fire, but give it away for the sake of the poor. Give it away for the blessing of others in the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus is asking all of us to do, whether it's money or your gender or your sexuality or your marriage or your singleness or your vocation or whatever, whatever he has given you. He's not saying stick it all in a pile and set it on fire. He's saying, would you be willing to give it all away for the blessing and benefit of others and the sake of the kingdom of God. This is what it means, by the way, to store up treasures in heaven. And T. Wright says it this way. He says, when Jesus says, you will have treasure in heaven, he doesn't mean that the young man must go to heaven to get it. He means that God will keep it stored up for him until the time when in the age to come, all is revealed. The reason you have money in the bank is not so that you can spend it in the bank, but so that you can take it out and spend it somewhere else. The reason you have treasure in heaven, God's storehouse, so that you can enjoy it in the age to come when God brings heaven and earth together at last. Jesus is inviting us to process the cost of discipleship, but really what he's doing is inviting us to live with a kingdom eternal perspective, right? This man has so many possessions, he can either enjoy those for his own sake now or give them all away for the benefit of the poor. And if he did that, it goes ahead of him and actually actually lasts into eternity. So that's the first thing, is the cost of discipleship. And I want you to just wrestle with this question because I've been wrestling with it all week. 
What is Jesus asking you to give away for his kingdom? Your money, your time, your home, your possessions, your singleness, your marriage, your sexual desires. I mean, you fill in the blank. What is Jesus asking you and I to give away for the kingdom of God? Here's the thing I can't get away from is if Jesus were to make this a condition for me to follow him, hey, Andrew, give all your stuff away, would I do it? That's a really scary question. So process that. Second one, real quick, go to verse 23. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, now this is not just about some rich man, this is about all disciples. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Here's the second thing I want you to see. It's not just the cost of discipleship. That's general. Now let's get specific. The dangers of wealth. Now, there's a lot of wrong interpretations that get thrown out with this, and it's, it's kind of funny. Like, some people have said, well, when Jesus said, you know, uh, it, it's difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, some people have said, well, the word camel's translated poorly there. It actually means twine or rope. Well, okay, if that's true, which it's not, but if that were true, you know that twine and rope also can't go through the eye of a needle, right? So that's kind of an unhelpful interpretation. Some other people have said, well, actually, the eye of the needle was this famous gate in Israel that a camel would have to literally bend down to get underneath this famous gate to get inside of Israel. And the problem with that is like the gate doesn't even show up in history till uh, almost 900 years after Jesus said this. So that's also not an unhelpful translation or interpretation of this. Let me just say it this way. I'm always leery of any translation that makes the very clear teaching of Jesus say something that it doesn't seem to be saying. Right, And so should you. Like if, if it's very black and white clear from Jesus and then we do some weird matrix backbend to get out of what he's saying, we might be wrong and we might not have the right interpretation. What Jesus is very simply saying is, if you're wealthy, it's really, really tough to actually follow Jesus. If you're wealthy, it's hard to follow Jesus. Now, in Scripture, there are four different categories of people and money. The first one is the righteous rich. There are people who are incredibly righteous and incredibly rich. Praise be to God. There's the righteous poor. Just because you're poor doesn't mean that you've done something wrong, doesn't mean that you've managed your money poorly, doesn't mean that you haven't uh, given it your best. There's the righteous poor. Over and over in Scripture, we see that. There's the unrighteous rich. There are people who are rich, but they're unrighteous. They're, they're, they're living in a way that's distorted and dysfunctional as God would define it. And then there's the unrighteous poor. There are people who are poor, and their lifestyle would reflect one of unrighteousness, right? So there's all these categories. My point in saying that is just because someone is rich or poor doesn't immediately tell you everything there is to know about the state of their heart and the state of their soul, right? So here's what I used to say a lot. I used to say that, uh, money is neither good nor bad. It's really our heart and how we relate to that. And I think that that's true, but let me say it a little bit more accurately that I think is maybe more true than that. 
Money, like fire, is useful, but it's dangerous. Fire is a gift when it's in your fireplace. Fire in your living room is terrifying. And money is kind of like fire. Like, no one just kind of is willy-nilly flippant about fire. If you're playing with fire, like, you got to be really, really careful because it is dangerous. Money is like that. It actually can be useful, but it's dangerous. It's really dangerous. And what Jesus is doing here is he's not saying, hey, poverty is the ideal way to live, but he is calling into question the assumption that wealth is the ideal way to live. You see the difference. He's calling into question that assumption. So money is useful, but it's also dangerous because our hearts are disordered to the point that it's very, 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 very challenging to have a healthy relationship with money and a healthy relationship with Jesus. It's just challenging. It's not impossible, but it's challenging. Let this sink in. Jesus never one time in the Gospels talks positively about money and possessions. I could be wrong, but check my math. I don't think there's one time that Jesus ever does a teaching on money and it has a positive feel to it. They all sound like what it sounds like here. Listen to this again. Mark 10, 23. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul, taking on a similar tone in 1 Timothy chapter 6, writing to young Timothy, says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, friends, here's what I want to do in this moment. I want to go... Amen. Thank God I'm not rich, right? I mean, just praise God that I'm not rich. All those rich people out there, they're going to have a hard time, but not this guy. I'm a pastor, and I am not rich. But can we just pause for a minute and remember that the way that we define wealth in America is a little bit wonky and bizarre, that we kind of look at Jeff Bezos and go, that's rich, or Bill Gates, that's rich. Or someone who's like not just one tier above you financially, but like three or four tiers above you. And you go, that's rich. But friends, just consider the following with me for just a minute. By the way, this is super popular, right? Are you, are you having a good time? Are you like, man, I love this. This is great. Marriage and divorce, money. and possess- What else can you say that's going to really drive me crazy and offend me? Uh, consider the following. Most of us drove here in a car. Some of us own more than one. I'm one of them. Most of us have a house or an apartment that we live inside of. Most of us have lots of possessions in our house or apartment. We have a couch, maybe couches, chair, chairs, a dining room table, coffee table. We have dishes, lamps, rugs, bookshelves, a coffee pot. Go down the list. Most of us have a closet full of different outfits to choose from, right? I don't wear the same thing every Sunday because I have a few options in my closet that I can choose from. Most of us have more than one pair of shoes to choose from. Most of us own a phone, or at least, you know, Sprint owns the phone, but we're paying for it, right? We'll never own the phone. How is that even possible? Like, I've been paying on this thing for years, and I still don't own the phone. A laptop, a computer, a TV. Most of us have a pantry and a fridge with food inside of it. Most of us have a regular source of income, Some of us have a savings account. Some of us have retirement accounts. Some of us have investments. 
and on and on and on I could go. My point is this, friends. If those things are true of you, you are among some of the wealthiest people alive today. You just are. We are the ones, most of us, that Jesus is talking about when he says, it's difficult if you're wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. We're the ones. I'm the one. So how do you know if money is more than just money to you? You don't ever give regularly, sacrificially. Or if you do, you don't give large amounts away. You get scared if you might have less than you're accustomed to having. You see people who are doing better than you financially or have more than you, and it kind of gets under your skin or it fills you with envy or you get a little bit uh, disenfranchised with your own life and wish that you had their life. Maybe you're unwilling to even consider that Jesus might be asking you to give some or most or all of it away. I mean, if you're sitting here going, la, 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 as a follower of Jesus, like trying to not hear whatever it is that he might be whispering in your ear, that's a little bit of a, a signpost that maybe something is not all well in your soul and in my soul. And I'm joking because I feel that. Now, let me just say this. I know that the objection in the room is, okay, here he goes. He's just trying to give trying to give, get us to give our money to Frontline Church. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I, I'm not actually after you giving to Frontline Church. As one of your pastors, I'm after you getting eternal life. That's what I'm after, right? So how you give to the poor and what that looks like, we can have conversations about that later. But the point is that this is not an optional teaching for Jesus. This is not discipleship 2.0. He doesn't ask all of his followers to give everything away but he actually wants us to grapple with his teaching about the dangers of wealth. Okay, last thing. Last thing I want you to see, verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Don't you love Peter? He's like, oh, I mean, just to throw that out there, Jesus, we did leave everything to follow you. So, I mean, I don't know if that counts is what you're describing, entering the kingdom of God, but I hope we've done that. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, this is one of my new favorites, with persecutions in the age to come and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first. Real quickly, I'll end it with this. The third thing is Jesus redefines the good life for us. So he, he wants us to grapple with the cost of discipleship, first of all, in a generic sense. Would we be willing to give away the most important thing in our lives, the source of identity and hope and security to follow Jesus? Then he wants to, wants to go a level, level deeper and warn us about the dangers of wealth. Now what he wants to do is redefine the good life. And here's what I mean. There's a cost to following Jesus, yes, and we should be honest about that. But friends, let's remember that there's also a greater cost not to follow Jesus. There's a cost to follow Jesus, but to say it another way, there's an amazing set of benefits. I wish I had a better word for that. I don't. 
of actually following Jesus. And one of the benefits or one of the blessings, one of the unique things that happen is that when you decide to give it all away to follow Jesus, you give it all away, yes, but then you inherit all things. And whether you've left family or whether you've had to walk away from a tough job or whether you've had to to, to leave wealth or possessions or whatever, what you inherit is that now as a follower of Jesus, Every other follower of Jesus is now your spiritual family. And everything that they own, you own because Jesus owns it all and he's called us all into radical generosity. So you go from having like a house and a car and a, to then now it's like everywhere I go, I've got followers of Jesus that are also being shaped by this radically generous God and they have all things as well. So if I'm lacking, then they have it. And, and if, I've ha- if I have something and, and my brother or my sister lacks it, then I can give it away for them, he's redefining how we think of the good life. Because in America, the good life is, it's all about you. Uh, get as successful as you can. Climb the corporate ladder. Make as much money as you can. Put as much in savings as you can so that you can, you know, the old saying, like, live like no one else so that you can live like no one else. You know, have all this money so that when you're old, you can just go spend it and uh, all these fun vacations, do whatever you want to do. What Jesus is saying, what if instead we redefine the good life as to giving all that you have for the blessing and benefit of other people in need, and when you're in need, they're doing the same for you. Therefore, there's actually no more needs within the body of Christ. We see this in Acts chapter 4 where it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is not pie-in-the-sky Christianity. This actually happened, friends. Did you know that Christians were so generous and so hospitable that they were the ones that first created hotels? The word hotel comes from the Greek word for hospitality. They also created hospitals. Both hospital and hotel come from the same Greek word. They set up a system where if you were a follower of Jesus traveling from one city to the next to go visit a church there, be a part of that community, and you couldn't get all the way there, they had a a home that they would basically house you in and let you stay there, and they would feed you, and they would care for you, and they would provide for you. And over time, that's that's what became hotels. Like, this changed the whole approach of hundreds and thousands and thousands and thousands of people for hundreds of years, which actually drew in the outside world to wonder what is it about this Christianity thing that's so amazing. There's a letter written by uh, an apologist in the second century to a Roman emperor. Here's what he says. He says, they love one another and he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, And if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life, and verily this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. What if we got captured by this vision, friends, where no longer was money and wealth and possessions the God that I so often return to? But what if I got captured by a vision where all that I have has been gifted to me by Jesus and I'm actually free to hold everything like this 
because it's holding everything like this that actually has an impact on the kingdom of God. It's the way that God has designed this whole thing to work. And to be clear, it's not all roses and lollipops and generosity. Jesus promises hundredfold persecutions too. I get some of that as well, right? You get some of that as well. But he's inviting us into a redefined good life. And I really hope you'll join. I really hope you'll join. So let me wrap it up like this. This has gone long and I apologize. How is it that you and I can become people of generosity? Because remember, remember, Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Well, there's a thing that happens in verse 21 that I think is the answer to this question. Verse 21, and Jesus, looking at this man, loved him. It's really interesting because this story is not just a story that has one rich young ruler in it, but it's actually a story with two rich young rulers in it. Jesus at this time was probably around the age of 32 or 33. He's a young man, but profoundly rich. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus looks at this man and loves him because this was why he left the riches of heaven, was for people like this guy. He's looking at him and he's saying, hey, I know what it's like to give it all away. I gave it all away. I left the riches of heaven to come to this earth and ultimately I'm gonna give it all away on the cross where I take your sin and your shame upon myself and I'm gonna die in your place so that you could be offered life and hope and freedom and forgiveness and joy, Jesus looks at this man and loves him. This man sadly walked away, and it's hard because Jesus doesn't run after him and go, I didn't mean all, I meant 50%, or I meant 20%. He doesn't do that. He lets this man walk away, and what he's inviting you and I to do is saying, hey, here's the offer. Will you join me in the kingdom? Will you join me?